Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. I'm back. I'm Kevin Ellis. Uh, we're going to go to Washington and talk to our Washington correspondent, Bob Ney, about this Israeli-Hamas uh, situation. I just want to remind everybody uh, of the caveats at the beginning. I'm going to make mistakes here. I am not an expert on this issue. Uh, everybody on this show is, knows a lot more about it than me. I urge you to listen to the podcast uh, that will be up shortly after the show. I know Danny will get it up very quickly uh, so you can listen to the show in its entirety. Okay. Bob Nay, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Kevin. I, as much as I'd love to talk about the Speaker of the House and the Republican mm-hmm. Party, uh, I, you, you were in Congress. Uh, you watched us appropriate billions of dollars uh, to Israel uh, for many, many years. What is your reaction to the attack by Hamas and Israel's uh, now reaction to the attack? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I supported uh, Israel uh, during those 11 years, and uh, I believe the Congress now has to and will support Israel in a, a couple of items that it's going to need, and it's going to cost, you know, some money, uh, but they've got to do it. Um, the, the Gaza Strip, and, of course, this is – where, you know, it's so touchy. If you say one thing, then you become pro-terrorist, you know. And some people have been pro-terrorist, and some people have been pro-Israel. Israel has to defend itself, no question about it. And I think, this is my opinion, but this, this is the same conclusion I came to when I was out in the Capitol and we got hit, you know, with 911. And that is that Osama bin Laden, like Hamas, they're not doing what they're doing because they want to strike back like Osama bin Laden hated Americans, you know, and he wanted to strike at us. Hamas is doing this to change the whole dynamics, frankly, of the world is what it's trying to do. It's trying to make people argue against each other. It's trying to now be a player in the process because, you know, here we are. We've done these attacks in its own warped way. Hamas thinks that it gained something off of this. These were the most horrific attacks seen in ages. Now, it is true that in the Gaza Strip, because there's two areas, there's the Gaza Strip, and then there's the West Bank. The West Bank was not under the control of Hamas, but the Gaza Strip, as I think less than 50% of the voters, frankly, if I recall correctly, did put Hamas in charge. And there were 71% unemployment. So I'm just saying this to kind of look at what's going on in the Gaza Strip prior to this. It doesn't justify what they did. But there was a situation where Hamas fed uh, fed these uh, people, these Palestinians, the idea that, you know, you're down so far, you're 71% unemployed, 52% under 30 years old unemployed. We can give you a better result. That's how they, they sold it. And of course, if Hamas were to take over the entire Gaza Strip and run it as a country, they would turn on their own people like the Taliban did. So uh, what what Israel has here is something that, you know, they're going to get criticized for because anytime you go in like this and they're going to request now demand actually to move 1.1 million people and they're going to go from the north to the south of the Strip. Now, to put it in perspective, the strip is five miles wide. So imagine five miles from your studio, 
and 25 miles long. So let's imagine 25 miles away from your studio. That has 2.1 million people in it. So, I mean, this is a severe problem. After this is done, after Israel stabilizes the area, there's going to have to be discussions on what on earth happens with those 2.1 million people in the Gaza Strip and, and uh, you know, how they try to come to some kind of solution to make thinking better over there and to make life better over there than under Hamas. Bob, uh, I, now I want to come back to the United States because there are two two points. There are Americans who have died in this, and there, now there are American hostages in in uh, Gaza. Uh, there's that. Then there is the dysfunctional, to put it lightly, politics in Washington, D.C., where the Republicans cannot even elect a Speaker of the House. So therefore, the Congress of the United States is impotent at the moment in terms of its ability yes. to act. Uh, take it from there. <laughs> The Congress is in a meltdown on the Republican side. Uh, Scalise, you know, he, he got the nod in the caucus. And then within hours, up to 20 people said, we're not going to do it. Uh, there was kind of an agreement, I, I believe. When I say kind of, I think for the most part, a general lady and a gentleman's agreement that whoever won out of Jordan and Scalise, everybody was going to support him. I, I believe that's. From friends of mine in D.C. that were in that caucus, that's what you know they've told me. So it went haywire, and now Jordan doesn't have the votes, and they're looking at a compromise candidate. Here's the bottom line: the Republicans in that House are playing, uh, you know, political Russian roulette. They've done it. Uh, they are in the circular firing squad. If they don't get their act together very, very soon with everything that's going on. Uh, coming up on the debt, you know, uh, crisis again in uh, in America, and the shutdown potential, and what's going on in Israel, which is huge. Uh, if they don't do something to come together, they really probably should probably just say goodbye to running and controlling the house in 2024 because they can't do it right now. So this is a, a major dilemma. And, and Bob, take us back in terms of the mechanics. You sat in the, in the seat there. You were on a committee. You watched the mechanics go every day. Take us back to the Israel Hamas situation. How, uh, does this hamper the Biden administration's ability to deal with the crisis or not? Well, I don't think it will because the White House will have the ability to basically do what it needs to do. And if the Congress is, you know, I like, I like your word impotent, if it can't function, then I would say that the president would have certain emergency ability to move money and to provide money, you know, for, for Israel. And, um, I, I mean, I think people have to be very, very careful in this when we talk about negotiating with Hamas. I mean, this isn't like some other groups uh, that are out there. This is like the Taliban. I mean, these are not people you can negotiate. Over four times, Israel has offered a state of the Palestinians, and Hamas has rejected it. You know, when they had the PLO, Yasser Arafat, <laughs> everybody thought he was bad. He was much more amiable to, right. to try to make a deal than a lot of other people. So you can't deal with Hamas. 
This is an all-out problem. Now, this is one thing I will say, though. Having been in Congress, when you know, let's you know, let's go into Iraq, weapons of mass destruction. We know that wasn't true. Now, having been there, having seen the Patriot Act as an emergency when you know nine one one happened, and seeing the flaws in that, we've got to be very careful. Senator Lindsey Graham has called for you know bombing Iran. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, we you know there needs to be you know. A, a leveling process and taking a cool breath here, you know, take a take a deep breath in D.C., try to focus on what we can do to help Israel. We're going to have to focus on the aftermath, obviously, uh, with the Palestinians to see you know, what can be done as a, as a world entity uh, with the United Nations. But I think people have got to start, have a calm head, you know, try to put the blame game out there later on. And And behind the scenes, Bob, you know, it's it's almost like a a, a a Broadway play here, right? I mean, the the actors play their their roles, but behind the scenes, there's always something going on that we learn about in a documentary film that's made five, ten years from now. Whether it's the Oslo Accords, where the Palestinians are meeting secretly with the Israelis and trying to work out a deal, um, you know, a, 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 a Sadat made a deal and was assassinated. Rabin made a deal and was assassinated. It's almost like we need to ignore the past and have a massive truth and reconciliation forgiveness here and try to move on to a two-state solution. But I don't know who the person is, the Martin Luther King, the the uh, Nelson Mandela, who can step up and actually do that because they would be sacrificed in this kind of a situation. I mean, I think you just made the most thoughtful and uh, important point I've heard in a long time, and it's going to have to happen. And by the way, including Iran, in the sense that, you know, not that we have to yeah, do things for Iran, but at some point in time, because Iran has so much control over Hamas, unfortunately, we're going to have to have somebody reach out. If it's not us, maybe the Swiss, you know, they're pretty good at that. Uh, I was involved with Clinton and Bush in, in back-channel negotiations with the, uh, you know, uh, of thought, not negotiations of deals, but of thought, throwing things out there with the permission of the White House and a request of it. So it, it does happen. And then all, that all went by the wayside, everything. So even with Iran, we're going to have to think at some point in time, the, 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 you know, the UN, the world, is going to have to think how we begin to communicate, including with people that we may not really like. Okay. Bob Day, as always, I wish we had five hours. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd solve it all, but thank you for joining you us. It. Yes, thank you. Thank okay. you so much. Coming up, Ken Picard of Seven Days. We're back. And we're joined by Ken Picard, the legendary reporter for Seven Days. We're gonna, we're gonna leave Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip for just a few minutes and we're gonna go to, to back in time 400,000 years beneath the ice of Greenland because Ken has a, uh, a, a groundbreaking story about climate change. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. And uh, I, I wish I had a, a story that was more uplifting than the um, really sad and depressing news that you were just talking about. But uh, unfortunately, this one is uh, not a whole lot cheerier. Um, you know, it's it's okay. I, I we did a caveat at the top of the show saying these are hard issues all around. Absolutely. Uh, but we have an obligation to face them, and we're not going to ignore them. We're going to get some of it wrong, 
because uh, it's a world away. But, um, you know, uh, silence is not acceptable. We've got to understand it and we've got to learn about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, this was a, yeah, tell us. Yeah. Well, this is an interesting story that uh, came to me from Paul Bierman. Now, Paul is an environmental science professor at the uh, uh, University of Vermont. And um, back in July, he and a team of scientists from around the world, they published a study in uh, the journal Science. And it got an awful lot of press attention because uh, for a number of reasons, but um, sort of the gist of it was that they were able to determine that northern Greenland, so an area above the Arctic Circle, was ice-free as recently as 418,000 years ago. And, you know, listeners might say, okay, so what? There was, there was no ice up in Greenland, you know, 400,000 years ago. But what was interesting was they were able to determine that there were actually plants growing up there. And what we do know is that, you know, 400,000 years ago, the sea levels were 20 to 40 feet higher than they are today. And so Paul and his team were able to show that as much as 20 feet of that sea level rise was basically came from the Greenland ice sheet, which is one of the largest uh, glaciers in the world. And um, uh, what, you know, back then, you know, it took 20,000 years for that ice to disappear. Um, it's about a mile thick right now. And um, that could disappear um, by the end of this century. So that's a that's a pretty scary thing to think about because, you know, given that, you know, 40 percent of the world's population live near a seacoast, that's a that's that's um, some scary stuff. So and, can, um, can can explain to us exactly what they discovered that we didn't already know. OK, so one of the things that they, you know, scientists had long assumed that the Greenland ice sheet um which is, as I said, it, it's huge. It's twice the size of Texas. It's a mile thick um, from top to bottom. And scientists always assume, like, that thing's been stable for millions and millions of years. But what Paul and his team were able to figure out and how they figured out is really interesting. That's a whole story unto itself. But they were able to figure out that the the ice sheet goes through these cycles where, you know, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But when that ice sheet disappears, all that ice melts into the ocean, and the sea levels come up. And so, you know, 20 to 40 feet, you know, to give you an idea what that would be, that would make Boston a series of islands, essentially, you know, New York City, underwater, you know, much of Florida underwater. So, you know, this is, you know, this is not um, inconsequential. So can really fascinating. I'm sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was what was really I, fascinating I, about this this story was how they figured this out, um, because this is a little bit of like goes back to sort of the the Cold War era when uh, the U.S. and the Soviets were on kind of a nuclear hair trigger with each other. And um, so back in the back in the 60s, um, the U.S. military had this secret base under the ice up in northern Greenland. And um, the idea the thinking at the time was that the the military would hide about 600 nuclear missiles under the ice, put them on a subterranean or sub-ice uh, subway system and move these missiles around so that they would be less vulnerable to a nuclear strike by the Soviets. 
And, you know, being in northern Greenland, it would be that much closer to the Soviet targets. So, you know, the military had this idea, and of course that was top secret, but the cover story for all this was that they were going to be doing research on the glaciers. And so what they did is they brought in, you know, some of the top glacier scientists of the time, and they worked under under the ice. There was a base of about 200 people who worked below the ice, and they spent years drilling about a mile deep through the ice. And importantly for our friends over at UVM, they also dug about 12 feet into the soil below it. And that soil, as it turned out, proved to be extremely valuable for researchers today. And using that soil, essentially, they were able to figure out, like, wow, there were actually plants growing up in northern Greenland at some point. Um, but it was just a fascinating story that, that Paul tells, and uh, he's working on a book about this right now. But, um, you know, fascinating stuff. And also just the science behind it is is just really intriguing, like how they figured out how old these samples were and how old these plants were. Um, you know, they're doing some real cutting-edge stuff up there at UVM. So. It's, it's tempting to focus on this Camp Century underground, under-the-ice nuclear weapons uh, depot back in the Cold War. There's a, cover, there's a great picture in your story. Uh, it was on the cover of Popular Science magazine. Oh yeah, and and you, oh, yeah. you just think to yourself, uh, what were we thinking back then? Uh, now you know we, you know, right? I mean, it just seems crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, you know, they they also had the opportunity to to be, you know, doing some really cutting edge science. Um, you know, the science they were doing was it was it wasn't just a a uh, cover story. It was legitimate science they were doing. And, you know, they were able to pull a mile, miles worth of ice and, you know, 12 feet of soil from the bottom up. And, you know, if you talk to, to Paul and his team, you know, they refer to this as this, the stuff that we pulled up from the bottom, that's rarer than moon rocks. Now that's, that's not hyperbole. I mean, you know, they were how many missions to you know, six, Missions that went up to um, Apollo missions that right. went up and brought back about 800 pounds of moon rocks. You know, these guys, when they drilled through the through the glacier, they brought up about 69 pounds of rock or dirt. That's it. Frozen dirt from the bottom. And we've never done that since. You, uh, Paul works with uh, UVM students on this. Uh, did you get a chance to meet them? I did. I did. Um there are uh, three young women who are uh, all working on this, doing some really interesting work, I, I might add. Um, they're all in their 20s, which makes sense um, because, frankly, they're going to be the generation that's going to be dealing with this problem. Um, and, you know, for, you know, decades and decades, polar science has been sort of the dominion of uh, white males. And so, you know, the National Science Foundation, which is funding all this research, they really want to change the, the face of polar science so that it looks more like, you know, the rest of America. So um, they really made an effort to, you know, have a, a diverse team come in. And, and um, you know, these these young women are, are doing some really cutting edge science. I mean, they're, 
They're looking, they're using isotopes, these rare isotopes that were found in the sediment at the bottom of the glacier. They're dating it by using cosmic rays that come from outside the solar system. I mean, it, the science is just mind-blowing, um, even if the conclusions that they're reaching are kind of frightening. Right. But um, it, it is really amazing to see the, the work that's being done here and uh, and the fact that Paul was able to figure a lot of this stuff out because he had studied glaciers for 30 years and had been doing this kind of work here in Vermont. I mean, he was studying how the Green Mountains were formed, and um, he had gotten a hold of one of these samples, and some of these samples had disappeared for decades, and they thought they were gone. Nobody knew where they were. And then somehow they turn up in a freezer in Copenhagen, and Paul gets a, you know, he's, he gets a phone call one day. And he's like, oh, we think we found the bottom of Camp Century. Um, and so he goes over there, he flies over to Europe and gets his hands on one of these samples and brings it back to Vermont and goes into a lab and melts it. And, uh, he's, you know, kind of staring at the bucket of water and he looks in there. He's like, there's things floating in there. And he tells his colleague, uh, Drew Christ, he says, he says, Drew, put that under a microscope. And Drew puts it under a microscope. And sure enough, there's fossils in there. And not just fossils, there's plant matter in there. Wow. And so Paul recognized that. He knew he knew what he was looking at because he had done that here in Vermont. He'd been studying the bottoms of uh of lakes and ponds right here in the you know, in the Green Mountains. And it was just for him, it was like, I know what that is. It was a plant. And wow. it came from a mile deep through the ice. Uh, just wow. Um it's it's the cover story in seven days this week. Uh, Ken Picard is the writer. Uh, if you want to dig deep, there's a there's an article about it in uh, the magazine Science. But uh, start go to sevendaysvt.com. Ken Picard, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. You take uh, care. Incredible story. It's the cover story in seven days this week. When we come back, we're going to go to Israel uh, and talk to Ella Butter, who lives there. She's from Michigan, and she's agreed to call into the show and talk to us about what she's experienced over there. We are back, and we are going to return right now to Israel, Gaza, and Hamas. What has the attack by Hamas done thus far to the people living in Israel? Our next guest lives on a kibbutz outside of Tel Aviv. Her name is Ella Butter, and she is a lawyer and social worker, originally from Michigan. She has lived in Israel for many years, and she is calling us, and we hope the connection will be uh, good enough and the call won't drop. Ella Butter, I hope you're there. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, can you tell us, Remember, you're talking to an American audience. I've I've urged everybody to get a map out to try to understand the geography of what has happened mm-hmm. since Saturday. And but you have lived there for a long time. Can you tell us what's going on for you where you live in Israel? Yeah, I live in the north, which is a relatively safe region of the country, but it is a small country, and the the distance actually between where I am and in the south where much of the military action is in the United States, um, in terms of the United States thinking, it's really quite a short distance. So we, we are getting a few missiles today from the south, which is unusual. 
but we we do have safe rooms. I live in a kibbutz, and we're able to go into the shelters during times of attack. But there is a sense that the whole country is at war and that things could possibly develop on the northern border where we have the Hezbollah. And so that's a major concern. We don't want that to happen, um, especially after the, the horrendous, barbaric attacks in the south. Tell us about the attack. Uh, how did you learn about it? And what was your first reaction? Well, it was a Saturday morning. It was a holiday. It was the, the, the end of Sukkot. It's called Simchat Torah. And um, at 9 o'clock in the morning, we got radio reports about terrorists who had taken over Kibbutzim in the south and that people were under siege. And it was clear to me when I heard this that this is going to be a huge disaster. It's going to be a massacre. It was clear to me that, that we... We, we, were, we were caught by surprise, and um, we weren't ready for this. And um, so when the numbers started to come in, it, it, it was very, very, very alarming. And as the hours passed, it became more and more disastrous and devastating. Of course, after many hours, we learned that there were also hostages taken, and we started to hear about the the very, very brutal atrocities that were committed that are still with us today and will be for a long time ahead. And and how do you get your news? Is it newspapers, television, the Internet? Is it the same exact way we get it here? How do you learn about what's going on? Yeah, we, we try to keep the radio on because when there is a missile attack, so we have sirens. Um, the sirens are a little bit weak in some areas, so some people tend to keep their their phones on all the time. And um, also, there are you know there are apps here um, where the you know the army is in touch with the civilians and letting us know what's going on where and giving us instructions on what to do. So the most important thing, of course, is to be in a safe place when there are missile attacks. And unfortunately, there are many populations in Israel that do not have access to a shelter. And this is something that is um, very alarming at the stage where we are 2023. There should not be any populations that are left without protection. So there were quite a few um, people that were killed and injured in in Bedouin localities in the south where they, they don't have any form of protection. So vulnerable populations are very much at risk right now. Can you talk to us about the Palestinians and Hamas uh, and your sort of political cultural outlook? You've lived there for many years. Uh, you're a lawyer. You're a social worker. So you are a reader of history. Do you hold all Palestinians responsible for this attack or do you separate Hamas from the Palestinians? Oh, absolutely. Hamas is a terrorist organization. It has nothing to do, as far as I'm concerned, with the Palestinian people who have a right to peace, security, and their own land. I do not see the Hamas as partners. I do not see them as representatives. And I think of them only as an organization like ISIS, which meant nothing but horror. And 
Of course, we don't want the Hamas here. We don't want any terrorist organizations here. Um, and also, we, we need to keep in mind the fact that there is a conflict here. There is a regional conflict. It's a very delicate situation, Arab-Jewish relations. Any small um, match can just set an enormous fire, wildfire everywhere here. So we, we, I think we try to imagine um, living in, in some kind of um, coexistence, although it isn't really happening. We at least try to, to see it as a possibility, as a hope in the future. And and do you hold? Um, I, I don't know your politics, but uh, the Netanyahu government, <clears throat> we we call it in our in the New York Times over here a right wing government. Do, do you hold the Netanyahu government responsible for being unprepared for this attack at all, or are you supportive of the government? No, this has been a very problematic government. Um, it's a government that, as you said, it's very right wing, very conservative. Um, the ministers have not been concerned so much with the people of Israel, the security of the people of Israel, welfare of the people of Israel. They've had their own agenda that they've tried to advance, which is uh, an agenda that compromises democracy. This is not something that I think is for the good of the region at all. I feel very, very deeply that we need a government that's a national unity government that's going to bring everybody together here. The people of Israel feel betrayed by the government. The people of Israel feel that the government fell asleep on duty, that we were left to fend for ourselves. The people of the South had to fight the terrorists for hours and hours before anyone showed up. And this is certainly a sign that we were not in the right place. And this absolutely has to change. Um, The chief of staff has taken responsibility and has said, that the military was not aware of, uh, of what was going on, although there were apparently some kind of uh, signs that were going on and, and there was an alert, but the alert wasn't taken seriously. And, and this, is, this is the disaster here, that we really were not on it. And I think from now on, it's going to be very, very important for this country to be coordinated, for everybody in this country to be coordinated, People need to start working together and not apart. We have been a split nation for the last year with hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets and demonstrating to fight for a democracy that we really hope not to lose. And and how does that now let's now let's go to the really hard questions. How does that democracy go forward when you have the Palestinians uh, without their own homeland? How, How do we we being Americans, Israelis, Palestinians, all peace-loving people, how how do we get the Palestinians a homeland so that we can then work on co- peaceful coexistence from your point of view? Well, when I, when I moved to Israel in 1977, there was a peace movement, um, Peace Now. We demonstrated, went to the streets. The bumper sticker said, peace is more important than a greater Israel. And we need to decide what's important to us. Do we want peace or do we want war? Do we want to share or do we want to fight? Do we want to hate? 
or do we want to become friends rather than enemies? I find that the relations between Jews and Arabs where I live in, in the Galilee are very, very good, safe, and peaceful relations. We have proven that we can do it. We know as a society in Israel that we have what it takes to make peace happen. It's going on in the Galilee. It's going on in various areas of the country. But there are pockets and there are places where there are fanatics and extremists who think in terms of all or nothing and who think in terms of occupation and holding on to lands and territories that will not really open any opportunities for peace. So now you understand my politics and you know where I'm thinking. <laughs> yes. Well, we take on hard questions on this show and we, we, we try to balance it out, but we, we understand that, uh, you know, there's, this is a complicated issue and what we're mm-hmm. not going to be silent about it. Um, uh, Ella, what about the role of the United States? You're from Michigan originally. Uh, what should we be doing, uh, to try to, to try to stop a wider war and to stop the killing on both sides? Well, I think the, I think the, the emphasis here is on stop yeah. and the killing. Okay. There was a terrible catastrophe that happened here. Yes. It has to be responded to. Yes. The Hamas has to be stopped. They cannot continue, but we have to remember that there are civilians in Gaza and we have to remember that when we're bombing, there are also hostages in, in Gaza hostages from Israel. And it's in our best interest to carry out this war in the most humanistic way because we're here. We're all here to stay. And we've got to learn to get together and we've got to learn to share. This is the most beautiful country and it could be a paradise here if we only wanted it to be. If we were only willing to work for that. And I think that's what our what our friends and allies can also point out and say is that there are ways of accompli- of accomplishing security without compromising human rights in my opinion there can be certain limitations on how we carry out this operation obviously i'm not a military expert sure but i do feel that we need to do our utmost to to um, save as many lives as possible and to make sure that that we get our hostages free. And this is the cry of the parents and this is the cry of the families. First, free the hostages. Yeah. Yeah, I note that the FBI has, uh, the Justice Department in the United States has offered hostage negotiators. I don't know if the government is going to, Take, if Israel's going to take us up on that, but um, it, right. you've lived there since 1977. Why did you go in the beginning? Well, um, my mother's a Holocaust survivor, and her story has always been what has compelled me to fight for human rights wherever I am. And when we made the first family trip to Israel in 76, I just immediately fell in love with the country and knew 
that this is where I want to be and this is where I want to live and this is where I want to raise a family and this is where I want to do human rights work. And I can't imagine leaving no matter what happens here. And I think many Israelis feel that way, that we are here to stay, but we want to stay here in a peaceful nation. And we want to work things out. We want to find a way. And I think this is the message that we want to get across and, and to have our allies carrying that message and that hope. And also exerting whatever pressure can be exerted to make sure that we carry this out in the most humanitarian way. Because any death and any destruction is going to propel and perpetuate more and more violence. And we want to stop this vicious circle. Is there uh, one more question before we let you go about politics? Is is there a successor to the Netanyahu uh, political operation that could could help could have this conversation that you're asking for? Or do the politics in Israel allow for the discussion that you're asking for? I believe so. Uh, the national unity government that was just formed, I think. That's our chance now for for everyone to work together. I think the, the previous government that we had did, was more inclusive. There were more Arab parties, Palestinian parties. I think that a lot of really, really good legislature and work was done, um, especially on policy, uh, internal policy. Um, I think we can get back there. It's just a matter of deciding what our priorities are. And many of the people who I know, our priorities are in the right place. Well, uh, my thanks to you for joining us and, uh, and best of luck to you. Please stay safe and, uh, good luck with, vo- with voices like yours. Uh, we're all gonna get more informed and learn about what needs to happen over there. Uh, you're great to join us and I hope you'll come back on a pre, on a, on a future show. Thank you, Ella, for joining us. Oh, yes. Thank you. I would appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Okay. We'll stay in touch and please stay safe as these days roll by. Thank you. I'll say Shabbat Shalom to all of our listeners. Ella Butter. Ella is a lawyer and social worker originally from Michigan, and she lived in Israel since she was 16 years old. She moved there in 1977. And uh, we're... So that that was good. We're 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 under we're starting to understand what's going on over there, and it is not just people killing each other. There are peace loving people doing the hard work, uh, and with some luck, uh, maybe the killing can be stopped, and um, we can get to a better place. We're back, and we've spent most of the day talking about Israel. And Gaza and the attack by Hamas and the attack that the response by Israel and the ground war that is coming. Uh, I'm reading from the front page of the New York Times. Panic grips Gaza as Israel tells 1.1 million people to leave northern Gaza. Now, as the as Ambassador Ford pointed out to us in the first part of the show, where are those people going to go? There's more than 2 million people that live in Gaza, and the question is, they can't get to Egypt because that Israel's bombed that crossing. 
uh, and Israel bombardment of Gaza continues now for a seventh day after the attacks by Hamas. So the question is, where do those people go? The United Nations has asked Israel to, uh, for that demand to be rescinded. Uh, Hamas is urging defiance. And I, I know, you know, as I said earlier, everybody plays their role here. Uh, let's hope that there is diplomacy going on behind the scenes. Before we have to go, let's take a quick call. Michelle in Plainfield, you're on with us. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I, I think you did a very even-handed job. I really appreciate it. Um, I have uh, there's a school, and I, I'll send you some information called Hand in Hand in Israel, where it's a parent co-op founded by both an American and an Israeli. Twenty-five years that they educate uh, Arab and Jewish children together, and the parents run the school together. And it's, um, you know, you might want to feature it sometime because it's kind of one of these beacons. There are a lot of beacons in Israel uh, of hope uh, in this terrible thing. Michelle, so I'll, uh, I'll send you some information. Michelle, uh, you can find me at KevinKLS.com or you can email uh, DEV at VTViewpoint at RadioVermont.com. And I would love to have those people on the show. I'd love to have you back when we have more time, because uh, we've got to keep going on this issue. My show is at the moment next Friday is open. So please stay tuned and um, please send me that information. Great. Good. I will. Can okay. you uh, can you can you answer one question for me? It's uh, called you, Hand in Hand, by the way, the school, if you just want to. I have written information I was going to mail you, but it's Hand in Hand is the school. Uh, well, K- that's great. K through 12. That's great. Well, uh, we hope to talk to you on a future show, and uh, thank you for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, we have to go. Uh, that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, Ambassador, former Ambassador Robert Ford, Bob Ney, Ken Picard, and uh, especially Ella Butter, who called in from her kibbutz in northern uh, Israel. Uh, if you want to be a guest on this show, just uh, send me an email as uh, Michelle from Plainfield is going to do at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. As I said at the top of the show, especially for issues like this, our goal is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way uh, if we can. Um, the show becomes, becomes a podcast and I urge you to go click, go to wdevradio.com. You can click on the podcast button. Hit VT Viewpoint, and I know Danny will have that up uh, very soon so you can listen to this show uh, because uh, on this issue because we've got to stay informed. WDEVradio.com. You can listen there anytime. Remember, I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow me. My podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. It's called Conflict of Interest. We examine these issues uh, we deal with the, that we deal with on the show. As always, we'll talk politics, media, and culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. I'm getting a lot of response to our show on Medicare earlier this week. People are stopping me on the street and asking me questions about Medicare. Uh, I'm probably I'm the wrong guy to ask about Medicare and Israel, but uh, we're going to do our best. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivergan. Thanks every, to everybody at WDEV, including Lee Cattell, for this show. Thanks so much for joining us. 
I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.